Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Søren Kierkegaard's essay, The Present Age, which is often presented entirely on its own, is actually part of a review essay that he wrote, The Two Ages, contrasting a revolutionary age against the current age that he is living in, in Denmark in the 1840s. And we could transpose these ideas into other times, other places. In fact, we have to do that in order to make sense of this essay. We shouldn't take it entirely for granted as applying completely to our own time, although it does have a lot of implications for our present as well, depending on where we're living and what kind of age we're in. And so one of the key things that he tells us about what he's calling the present age is that there is a lack of passion and a lack of action within the present age by comparison to its predecessor, which is the age of revolution. So we've got this contrast going on here. And the age of revolution, people are genuinely motivated by lasting passions, for better or for worse, as we'll discover, and they engage in action that commits themselves. So if we're thinking about Kierkegaard in terms of existential philosophy, and he does use that term existential several times in this essay, we can say that the age of revolution, the age preceding the present age, is one in which people, it's not that it's simply easier for them to commit themselves existentially. They, in some respects, can't escape it, whereas in the present age, it's possible to do that. And he characterizes the present age in a number of different ways. So here's a definition, well, at least characterization that he provides of it. He says the present age is essentially a sensible, reflecting age devoid of passion, flaring up in superficial, short-lived enthusiasm, and prudentially relaxing in indolence, right? So it is a reflection age. He's going to use that term over and over and over in this essay. We'll come back to that in a moment. It's also an age, he says, it's a sensible age. He's going to use that not in terms of a sensuous age. Actually, that would be more commitment, right? The erotic, he says, has actually suffered in this present age. It's a sensible age in that it calculates. It thinks things out ahead of time. It's prudential. It involves common sense. He also is going to talk shortly of it being an age of publicity as well. He says, in contrast to the age of revolution, which took action, the present age is an age of publicity. So there's a contrast there between taking action and what he's calling publicity, which is sort of a substitute for action. And you might think about this in a different context. Here's an analogy you can use. We know from observation and from experience, as well as from some experimentation, that if you are going to try to do some writing or other creative work, it's better not to talk about it too much, because then the talking itself can become a substitute 
for the actual doing, which is more difficult and, and requires more from you than just chattering about it. But you get the same sort of rewards in good feelings from talking about the action as you would, at least to some degree, from doing it. And so in the age of publicity, we have something similar. There's much more to say about this, but here this should suffice. He says, the age of miscellaneous announcements, nothing happens, but still there is instant publicity. An insurrection in this day and age is utterly unimaginable, but a political virtuoso might be able to perform an amazing tour of force of another kind. He would issue invitations to a general meeting for the purpose of deciding upon a revolution, wording the invitation so cautiously, even the censor would have to let it pass. On the evening of the meeting, he would so skillfully create the illusion that they'd made a revolution, everyone would go home quietly having passed a very pleasant evening. And, you know, we can think about all the people who weigh in on social media and, you know, talk about their engaging in activism or revolutionary work or counter-revolutionary, whatever it may be, right? But it's, I mean, you can say that posting something on Twitter is an action, but it's not quite the same thing as demonstrating out in front of someplace, let alone taking direct action of, of some sort. And then he talks about it also being an age of anticipation. Now, here's kind of a strong declaration by him. The age of great and good actions is past. Present age is the age of anticipation. No one is willing to be satisfied with doing something specific. Everyone wants to luxuriate in the daydream. He may at least discover a new part of the world. Ours is an age of anticipation. Even appreciative acknowledgement is accepted in advance. So, I mean, you might say it's kind of a dismal view. Kierkegaard says it's not meant to be a dismal view. I'm just sort of diagnosing the conditions of our time, which is very important for figuring out what we can actually do. Now, this characteristic of what we might call an oscillation of comportments is very important. He says that there are superficial, short-lived enthusiasms. Those are not the same thing as having a genuine passion. Why? Because they are superficial. They don't reach down into the core of our being. They are short-lived. They're not something that people are committing to and sticking with. And enthusiasm well, this is a little bit interesting. This is going a little bit beyond what Kierkegaard is saying here, but I think you can see it is in the background. Kierkegaard, of course, is very conversant with ancient Greek literature and the Greek language and what the meanings of these terms that have come down to us in the present are. Enthusiasm is having something literally like spirit blown into you, right? It's, it's given to you by something and it was used to describe, say, what music might do or what tragic poetry might do to the person who is presenting it and then to the audience. You might think about Plato's dialogue, The Ion, where there's a, a long discussion discussion of this using magnets and magnetism as a model for that. But the problem is, take away the source and the enthusiasm goes away. A passion is something within you. It's no longer simply dependent on this continual, you might say, in-blowing or whatever we want to call it, this magnetism. So short-lived enthusiasm and then apathetic indolence. Apathetic, meaning, you know, not committing oneself in terms of passion. Indolence talks about not actually doing things, not engaging in action. And one can, in fact, be quite busy in apathetic indolence. It doesn't mean just laying in bed all day. It could be 
sitting there watching show after show after show, or scrolling all the way down, you know, the social media stuff, or engaging in tracking down, actually not tracking down rabbits, but just going down rabbit holes in Wikipedia, or sitting at the cafe and chattering with one's friends about, you know, the current situation, how we have to do something, but nobody actually ever doing anything, right? All of those are versions of apathetic indolence. It doesn't have to be laying around in bed and never making your bed and maybe having breakfast all the time over and over in bed. But those are, those are characteristic of the present age. I think that we learn something about what Kierkegaard is calling action when we look at his characterization of the previous age. So here's a passage that's very important from the essay just before the present age. He says, The age of revolution is essentially passionate. It's essentially passionate. Therefore, it has not nullified the principle of contradiction and can become either good or evil, and whichever way is chosen, the impetus of passion is such that the trace of an action marking its progress or its taking a wrong direction must be perceptible. It is obliged to make a decision, but this again is the saving factor. For decision is the little magic word that existence respects. Now, that is something really interesting to say, is it not? Let's talk first what he means by the principle of contradiction here. He doesn't mean the principle of non-contradiction in a merely logical sense, where we say that something cannot be and also not be in the same way at the same time, etc., etc., with all these qualifications that eventually have to be brought in. That's theoretically true, right? Aristotle points out that, hey, you want to deny it, you're going to end up using it. It's very difficult to get away from. No, of course, there are logics in which we play around with other ideas. Kierkegaard is not primarily interested in the theoretical here. He's interested in action. And there is a principle of contradiction involved in action as well. And in this case, it tells us, at least in certain points, well, you can't act and not act in the same way at the same time, which also means you, as the agent, have to decide or something else is going to decide for you. You get this or you get that and you have to take a stand. Now, when you have passion, that is going to help you take that stand. Reflection is going to work against that. And so this is why he can say that, here we go, it can become either good or evil, and whichever way is chosen, the impetus is such that the trace of an action marking its progress or taking a wrong direction must be perceptible. Now, the person who, who engages in evil, we can have all sorts of discussion. Well, do they really know it's evil when they're doing it? Yeah. For Kierkegaard, sometimes you, you can't actually know it. And you can certainly afterwards, like, look back and go, oh, man, we did the wrong thing there. But we chose to do the wrong thing. We committed ourselves. And the present age, according to Kierkegaard, is an age in which many people never get that far. They don't engage in actions like that. He says, so here's a great example. Action and decision are just as scarce these days as is the fun of swimming dangerously for those who swim in shallow water. Now notice the contrast there. Swimming dangerously, swimming in cases where you could in fact get hurt or get killed and just remaining in the shallow water. So he says, just as an adult, reveling in the tossing waves, calls out to those younger, come on out, just jump in quickly. Just so does decision lie in existence, so to speak, 
although of course it is in the individual, and shouts to youth who is not yet enervated by too much reflection and overwhelmed by the delusions of reflection, come on out, jump in boldly, even if it is a rash leap. If only it is decisive, and if you have the makings of a man, the danger in life's severe judgment on your recklessness will help you to become one. So he's, he's not saying that everybody in our present age is so, to use the word, enervated, meaning worn out, meaning lacking energy, lacking resolve. It is possible for people to make what Kierkegaard over and over again calls the leap. And notice that he's talking here about existence again. Existence at least presents us with the option of jumping out and taking an action, taking a stand. But many people don't. He also has a really great example of ice skating. He says, if the treasure everyone covets lies far out on a very thin crust of ice, guarded by the great danger to anyone venturing so far out, whereas, let us assume this oddity, which after all is only odd in the illustration, closer to shore the ice is thick and solid, in a passionate age, the crowd would loudly cheer the bold, brave person who skates out on the thin ice. They would shudder for him and with him in his perilous decision, would grieve for him if he meets his death, would idealize him if he gets the treasure. Notice that there's passion there, right? Grieving, idolizing, all these sorts of things. What's the case with the present age? And this goes to the not just reflection, but the sensibility part. He says, the situation would be entirely different in a reflective age devoid of passion. In mutual recognition of shared prudence, they would sensibly agree that it certainly would not be worth the trouble to skate out on such thin ice. In fact, it would be foolish and ridiculous. Then an inspired venture would be transformed into an acrobatic stunt. So there's two things going on here. One is saying there's that treasure, this thing that's really valuable, but, you know, it's not prudent to go out beyond where the ice could crack and you could be lost trying to gain that treasure. That would be silly, wouldn't it? And yet, they have people who do skate out there. Not past the point of danger, though. This is a, how it's transformed into an acrobatic stunt. In order to do something for something has to be done, they would go out and from their safe vantage point appraise with the air of connoisseurs, the expert skater who can skate almost to the very edge, that is, as far out as the ice is still safe and just short of being dangerous, and then turn back. One of the skaters would be exceptionally skilled, and he would even be able to perform the stunt of making one seemingly hazardous swoop right at the very edge, causing the spectators to shout, Ye gods! He is crazy! He is risking his life! But this is not him risking his life. This is just being prudent and skillful and giving a little bit of titillation rather than genuine passion. And so what we have here in these two examples is one that has to do with action, primarily. Jump in! Take the leap. The other has to do with the passion of the spectators. Oh, he's getting so close to the edge. But it's not really passion, is it? It's just, again, this sort of stuff that goes along with the present age. And so are there no actions whatsoever? Kierkegaard doesn't say that. He tells us that a person stands or falls on his actions is becoming obsolete. We no longer judge a person just by how they commit themselves. Everyone sits around and does a brilliant job of bungling through with the aid of some reflection and also by declaring that they all know very well what is to be done. But what people two by two in conversation, what individuals as readers or participants in a general assembly understand brilliantly in the form of reflection and observation, they would be utterly unable to understand in the form of action. And there are still people who act, but they are now becoming 
less and less comprehensible to those who sit back and just reflect, who think about things, who don't act because of that. Now, these actors, the ones who actually do something, he says nobody can really predict them. And if somebody did something, everyone would be taken aback and they would find it rash. But it's interesting because then reflection comes back in and says, oh, well, I guess that's the way it had to work. And you see this over and over again. I mean, great example of this, if you know anything about academia, are committee meetings, right? People will dither and dither. And it's amazing to see these otherwise seemingly quite dynamic and intellectual people going back and forth and wasting all this time. Eventually, somebody might actually say, listen, we're going to do this. And that's the end of the story. And then people, oh, 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 that's not collegial. But usually they'll actually be like, well, okay, since you feel strongly about that, we'll go along with you. And then everyone's like, well, I guess this is all, this works out just fine, right? Because the key thing was to decide something, not necessarily to have the best decision. And it could turn out to be a, a bad decision in retrospect, but at least it's a decision. Now, he also talks about this age as being a revolutionary age, but not an age of revolution. He contrasts it with a passionate, tumultuous age that wants to overthrow everything and set aside everything. Then he says, an age that is revolutionary, but also reflecting and devoid of passion, changes the expression of power into a dialectical tour de force, meaning this excellent thing that's being done, showing a kind of virtuosity, and is doing so through what Kierkegaard here is calling dialectics, which, you know, there's a lot of different meanings to this term, right? We're not going to, like, try to worry about teasing out every every meaning of it, but, but essentially... Dialectics means that there's some sort of engagement between things, and it can be done too much through reflection where it never actually arrives at an answer, but it's also how things are connected together. So he says, what happens in, in this age? It lets everything remain, but subtly drains the meaning out of it. Rather than culminating in an uprising, it exhausts the interactuality of our relations in a tension of reflection that lets everything remain, and yet has transformed the whole of existence into an equivocation that in its facticity is, while entirely privately a dialectical fraud, interpolates a secret way of reading that is not. Now that sounds very jargon heavy, so we should talk about some of the things that he's saying here, particularly this last part. It's transformed the whole of existence into an equivocation. What is an equivocation? An equivocation is where you're saying a term and that term has multiple meanings. Now, it becomes an equivocation rather than just being an equivocal term when you shift from one meaning to the other, and at least somebody isn't realizing that that's going on, and they think that you're talking about the same thing when you're really not talking about the same thing, when some sort of clarification or analysis or decision would have been required. And he says that in its facticity, meaning in the way that it's simply is within the world. So as human beings within existence, we ought to be committing ourselves, or perhaps maybe there isn't an ought there, but that's certainly a possibility for us. The age that we're in is one where the meaning has been drained out of everything. It's still there, but we don't have the value. We don't have the drive, the impetus. And he talks about attention of reflection. This is going to be quite important as we move on through the work, because there's a lot going on there. But it's enough to say that this is an age in which 
because of the, let's call it the availability and the social desirability of reflection, many people are not acting in any genuine sense. They're not committing themselves existentially, and they're not doing so. Action is correlative for uh, Kierkegaard, I would say in this respect, to passion. If you're not genuinely, not just motivated by the passion, where the passion automatically leads to the action, but where the passion spurs you to a point where you do have to decide and act, then there's a sort of, let's call it existential superficiality involved. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.